Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now up to, to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a 20-game winner, a 15-time Emmy Award winner. I want to talk to him about that. And one of the most beloved San Francisco Giants of all time, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Kruko. Group, thanks for coming on the program. Booney, about time you asked me, I was starting to feel a little bad, a little left out. You know what's funny? Okay, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll get off this in two seconds. We're talking about Emmys. You got 15 of them. In 2003, I was still playing, and I was in the booth for the postseason. Uh, when Fox was trying that third man in the booth, I didn't want to do it. You could probably tell if you rewatch my my segments. But that particular, that was the year when uh, it was the Yankees and the Red Sox. My little brother hit the home run, and we won an Emmy. Our broadcast won an Emmy. So I'm sitting there as a baseball player going, well, where's my Emmy? And they said, well, no, Fox gets the Emmy, but if you want an individual Emmy, you have to order it, and they'll send it to you, and you pay for it. I never ended up doing that, but I did have shirts made up. Uh, in the locker room saying Emmy Award winner. So tell me what a real Emmy Award winner is. You got 15 of them. Pretty cool. You know, it, it is. It's uh, it's recognition, and uh, uh, it's recognition for our crew. And we have uh, – it's really kind of a unique situation here in San Francisco. All of our camera people, all of our truck people, our producer, our director, and, of course, my partner, we're all about the same age. We've been doing it forever. And, uh, you know, an Emmy is just a product of uh, of teamwork, which – you know, when I left baseball, I didn't know if I'd ever find teamwork again, you know, and uh, and I did. I found it in uh, in the television business and it's really been fun. So when you say I win 15, we won 15 and I'm pretty proud of our team. That's that's very cool. You got you and you and Kipe been together forever. I mean, you've been there for I don't know if there's a, a more uh, tenured crew uh, than you two with an organization. Um very cool. And by the way, on Sunday, uh, sad day, you know, Roger Craig, uh, you know, one of the greats, I know you played for him. I know you, he was a part of your life. So my condolences on, on Roger Craig on Sunday. I know that was a kind of a sad day for, for, for giants nation, actually. You know, it really was. I mean, you, you think back when Roger got here in 1985, he, he took over in September for uh, Jim Davenport and it would be this, the, the, the season where the Giants lost 100 games. In 141 years of Giants baseball, they've only lost 100 one time, and that was that year. And Roger Craig was there for the last 30 days, and at the end of the season, he's, he, he said to everybody, and it's, um, it, it, we really should talk about this, because when I was with the Cubs and the Phillies coming in to play the Giants, and, and you know, coming in to play in Candlestick, everybody would bitch and moan like two weeks out. And the hitters were just miserable. And nobody, I mean, Keith Marley used to say a great series in San Francisco was two loud fouls on a hit batsman. And a lot of a lot of people felt that way. Then when I got traded to the Giants in, in 82, uh, I found out that the Giants players bitched more than anybody. And in 1985, when Roger took over, he was with us a month, and he observed the same thing at the end of the season. He says, okay, boys, you don't realize it, but you have the greatest home field advantage in the history of sport. And the negativity is gone. If any of you want out of here, you let me know. You let Al Rosen know, and we will abide you. And uh, But I won't want to hear any bitching and moaning ever again. This is our house, 
and we're going to start looking at it in a positive way. So we thought about it over the offseason. We came back the next year. 13 guys were gone off that team. And we had a bunch of young players, uh, Will Clark and Robbie Thompson and uh, Jose Uribe, uh, Chris Brown. We, we just had a lot of youth. And uh, and that was the motto. And that was the thing. you got to like these kids. And, and Roger, by the time we got to camp, and I'm thinking, they didn't do anything really to bring in a, a better team. And the time we left to go to camp or to start the season, we were going to open up in Houston against uh, the Astros, who were very good, and then the Dodgers. This is our road trip. We could have gone 1-5, and 0-6. Oh we win both series. And we believed in ourselves. And it was because of, of the confidence that was instilled in our hearts, in our minds, by Roger Craig. He did more for me in baseball than just about anybody I've ever come across. And I, and I, I love him. And I, and I was terribly distraught when uh, I got the word that he had passed on Sunday because he meant the world to us and to the Giants nation. He brought pride back to San Francisco. Yeah, very cool. And, and you're so right about candlestick. You're so right about the two weeks out, the bitching starts. It's probably like a it's probably like a starting rotation. We're going to Colorado in two weeks, especially back same before thing. the humidor. They probably <laughs> same thing. Same thing. Oh, uh, totally. Um, right. All right, I know it's old hat. I know it's old hat. I know it was so two months ago, but I had to ask you about it because from being a pitcher in the booth every day, seeing it up front, the new rules, what you think the long-term effects going to be of these new rules. I'll, I'll tell you when I heard the rules this, this past off season that we were going to have a pitch clock. I rolled my eyes. I said, come on, what are we doing? You know, we kind of pride ourselves as baseball players as not having a clock. Uh, I was, you know, I, but I had an open mind. I said, I'll wait to see what happens. So far, the feedback's been pretty good. I mean, it's swifter games. Uh, and I look at it from the standpoint, as a hitter, I don't think I'd have a problem. I wasn't a guy that that stayed in the box, but I wasn't a guy that walked around either. So I think after spring training, getting used to it, it was fine. From a pitcher's perspective, a little different. Because I, I know myself as a second baseman, I knew when, when my pitcher was struggling, he needed a moment. I could just run in, call time at any time. We could talk about the weather, wine, or, or where we're going to dinner that night because I knew, Mike, you needed a blow on the mound. You can't do that anymore. But as we get into the season, I'm seeing this. The, the hitter has to engage the pitcher at the eight-second mark. But now the pitcher holds the cards. And that cat-and-mouse game that we used to play, if you'd hold the ball on me – in the old rules, I had the luxury of stepping out, calling time. Now we go back. We can do this dance as long as you want. Now it seems like you, the pitcher, hold that dance card, and you can just hold the ball and mess with me. I don't know what. It, what is that's my overall view of what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? Because uh, you're seeing it on a daily basis. Well, when they proposed this, and uh, we started seeing how it was actually working in uh, the minor leagues, and they, they'd studied it. I mean, they, they played over 4,000 minor league games with it. So they kind of worked out all the bugs by the time it got to uh, spring training this year. When I first heard about it, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait for it. We saw a graphic earlier this year, and it said, uh, started with the decade of the 50s. And uh, they showed the 50s, and then, you know, then they showed the 60s. It was a little bit higher. Then they showed the 70s. And when it got to the 2000s, it just spiked way up. And it got to where it was last year. The average game was three hours and six minutes. The average. That was the average. We were seeing four-hour, nine-inning games. 
The average now is two hours and 36 minutes. It's faster than the 50s. It's the fastest decade. I, well, certainly in my lifetime. So I'm thrilled with it. Now, I, what had happened was every hitting coach and every pitching coach was telling the pitcher or the hitter to control the tempo and the rhythm of the bat. So you had guys up there waiting literally 20 seconds between getting in the box. I don't know how many times you can rewrap Velcro or sit there and scratch your balls before you get in the batter's box, but they were doing it. And it was, it was terrible. There was dead time. And you see Kenley Jansen taking 30 seconds between pitches. Are you kidding me? It was killing the game. You look back at the, at the stands behind the uh, home plate and you're looking at the top of people's heads because they couldn't stand to watch the game because it was boring the hell out of them. So I, I just thought that, that the pitch clock really did save our game. And I'm thrilled with it. And, and I don't ever want it to go away. Now, there are some drawbacks, like you said. You know, especially with the men on base, where you have 20 seconds. If a guy calls time, now he gets back in that box, you can hold him for 15 seconds. And guys are doing it. And the other thing, too, is from a pitcher's perspective, you know, there were times when I threw a slider and I'd get a zinger that go through my elbow and go up through one ear, out the other, and up through my asshole. I mean, it was just a, it was a bad, bad deal. And I'd have to step off the mound for 30 seconds to kind of regroup before I could throw another pitch. And uh, now, now you can't do that. Now, now if you, you know, you've got 15 seconds, if there's nobody on base, there are some things that are working out, and guys are definitely taking advantage of it. But I think overall it's a hit. I agree. I, I mean, and I'm, I was a cynic. I, I have to admit at the beginning, I didn't want any part of it. As I watched it, I kind of like it. And now being on this side of the mic, it's, it's great because if I've got to watch a game or, or watch a couple games, it's over in two hours and 20 minutes. I think it's, it's swifter. I think as a result, uh, the hitter is so aware that he's got to be ready. The pitcher's so aware. I think organically you're getting more contact. Uh, now, I don't know how you feel as a pitcher as far as the stolen bases, but I, I think the, the reason, part of the reason they did it, they wanted to bring back, they wanted to incentivize you for stealing bases. Now you have that incentive sitting right there. I think it's easier to steal bases, especially for elite, real base stealers. They're going to take advantage of that two times you can disengage, but I'm with you. I, I overall, I really like it, and I think – the fans really like it, which at the end of the day, they're the reason they're the they're the butts in the seats and they're the most important part. Oh, so true. Fans are loving it. They're back in. You know, people aren't watching their phones. They're engaged in the game. Um, I, I do like the fact that the running game has come back. I, I, when they when they started talking about you only get two disengagements, two throwovers, I thought, well, uh, how's that going to work? Um, but the other law or rule that said that, you know, you can still throw over, you just have to get it out. I thought, well, okay, that makes sense. And you know, we can do that. Um, I just don't see a downside to any of it. I, I just think it's, it's keeping players off the field. I just think that, that, that most of these rules, the bottom line on all of them, other than, than making our fans more interested and in, in enjoying the, the, the experience of a game more is to protect the health of the players. And I just think that, uh, you know, four, four hour games, that's not good for a defense. That's not good for the legs of a defense in a 162-game schedule. And, Booney, you're an everyday player, man. You, you know what that's like when somebody's having trouble or you have a long game. I love what they've done to uh, shorten uh, extra innings, and, uh, and, and, and I feel the same way about that that I do with the pitch clock. I, I just think we need to protect our players, and this is another rule that does that. Um. Another thing, modern day. And I watch, I watch Aaron all the time. 
And it, and it cracks me up. I think Aaron Boone is, is setting records for getting thrown out of the game the most. <laughs> you know, and I'll call him because we – Crook, you know both of us. We're, we're kind of oil and water personality-wise, but uh, we're, we're kind of like-minded. We get along very well. We love to debate one another. Uh, but I laugh because I tell Aaron, I said, you know, I have the ability to go right up to that point where you get in trouble and pull the plug. Aaron seems to go right through that stoplight now. He's getting thrown out all over the place. That's the way he is. Aaron, he's a passionate guy. He's always been passionate. He loves his players to death, and he will back them. Uh, but I'm just watching this strike zone. We had Tim Cheetah on the other day, the, the uh, long-tenured umpire. And I was talking about the umpires today and the pressures they have. Uh, back when we were in the game um, – it was different. It was the it was the old school. It was the it was the boys' club when it came to umpiring. Different ball game than it is now. They weren't as scrutinized. They didn't have the data, the technology, and I even fall fall uh, fall into the trap of watching that little white box on TV when I'm I'll yell at the umpire on TV, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. This little stupid white box that enabled all of us to be to be the best umpire in the world from our couch really isn't an accurate measure. But also in the dugouts when when I was playing, I didn't have a TV remote. I couldn't see every single pitch. So you see it, the, the managers chirping a lot more often than in past. Do you see this being a problem? What do you think about the umpires now? Tim Cheetah said, and Verbe, he, he, I think he he uh, was in the big leagues for 20, 25 years, and he told me, he said, Booney, you know what? I watched these umpires today. They're as efficient as they've, as they've ever been in the history of the game. And, and that was him. He's retired now, saying the guys today are the best. Fundamentally, the data proves it out in, in how they train. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I agree. I, I think umpiring today is is fantastic, and uh, it's never been more difficult because of all the added responsibilities. Um, I am so fearful that they're going to implement this automatic strike zone, this uh, this robotic strike zone, and to take away the umpire element because I, I just think that that's one of the big things about our game that is so interesting. Um, and I and I do believe that as an as a veteran, you know, you can you can work an umpire, you can create an advantage or a disadvantage, you know, you have to be able to identify if a strike zone is big or if it's small on that given night and you don't have to deal with it. I mean, it's an intangible that I, I think favors um, a student of the game. Um, you know, I, I think that with managers arguing for their players, I, I think it's sort of mandatory. And I mean, I asked Ed Montague one time about, you know, how did you, how did you establish your strike zone? He said, well, I would just keep calling it higher until somebody yelled, and then I'd keep calling it lower until somebody yelled, and then that was my strike zone that night. And I I just, I like that. I, I think that's the kind of way it should be. And by the way, I could play for your brother in a heartbeat. I like the fact that he fights for his team. I mean, managers like that, to me, are the best managers. But I, I, I think that the, the umpires today are indeed the best they've ever been. I think that the report card that they get at the end of uh, every game in regards to their calling balls and strikes, has really made them more efficient. Um, one thing that I don't like about it is that, you know, there are some common sense things that, you know, are not included in the new rules of, of uh, umpiring. Uh, for example, I mean, you know, we see like Albert Pujols. I mean, if you've got a pitch clock and he's going to hit 700 home runs and he's getting in that batter's box in every ballpark and they're giving him a standing ovation, 
You can't put the pitch clock on him. That guy deserves the right to stand there and get his minute of praise and recognition. So I think overall, I mean, you know, they're starting to tweak the rules so that common sense kind of comes back into it. It's not so rigid with the with the rules that uh, uh, that, that, that they be enforced. But overall, I just think the umpires are a huge part of a game, a, a positive part of our game, and I hope they never change. And I do agree with, with uh, Cheetah. I, I do think this is the best we've ever seen. The umpiring now, I think, is fantastic. I think that is a great point you made that's not brought up enough, the common sense factor. You're right, because when I first came in the game, all I expected was with each umpire, and, and we all know, there's always the best There's the best guys out there. There's the, there's the guys that are okay. And then there's the guys that you know are either hitters or pitchers umps that whether we're a hitter or a pitcher, we don't want them behind the plate. Uh, but all I ask is establish your strike zone early. Stick with it. That's all we can ask. You're a human being back there. I can't expect you to be a robot. Uh, but I think the common sense thing, the guys back then did have common sense. You know, you, you talk to an Eddie Montague. It, it wasn't that you mentioned rigid and just cut and dry. It was no, let's, let's be, let's be rational about this thing. I think you're right on that. And, and I don't think that's the first time I've heard it. I think it's a great point. The guys today, the common sense is lacking a little bit, even if the, the data points they're hitting everything they're supposed to when they get their report card. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, you get into a 10, nothing ball game. And back in the day when we had it, look, we had one, we had, there were two sets of umpires, American league, national league. And we knew everybody. And, and all the empires knew you. I mean, you knew their families. They knew your families. Uh, it was a different relationship you had with them. But if it was a 10-0 ball game, that ball that strike zone got big. I mean, I, I know umpires that would tell you, you better swing because I won't be calling any balls. They wanted to get off the field. I mean, everybody did. And, and, and you know, now because there's such fear of the report card uh, that guys don't, they don't apply that. They don't kind of give in to the, to the obvious. That is the blowout game. So, no, I, I think that uh, it's it's any yeah, we could talk about the umpires forever, man, because I'm pretty passionate about it. I, I love my relationship with them. Um, you worked at it. If you said something stupid, you went in the next day, you apologized for it, you moved on. And uh, and I, I just don't want to take that that human element out of our game. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I want to talk about the American League West a little bit. Dodgers have been obviously atop that division for for five, six, seven years. Uh, lost a couple of the Turners. Walker Bueller hasn't been on the field for him. They're ace. Uh, they're still atop the division. Arizona's much better. Uh, Giants are hanging in there right now. They're hanging in there. And, and uh, watching on a daily basis, they got enough to contend in that division, do you think? with The, the, the biggest disappointment thus far is obviously the San Diego Padres with all the offseason moves they've made. Uh, on paper, that should be the best offensive team in baseball, and I think they're down by the by the bottom in the National League. Uh, your overall view of of the uh, I'm sorry, of the National League West. I, I said American 
National League West. Your overall view so far of the National League West, how it's shaping up. Well, I, I think every ballpark's a snake pit. I mean, you, you could go in and have a disastrous weekend and lose all three games in all four of the cities. Um, from the Giants' perspective, um, you know, they've done pretty well. They're, they're right at 500, a game under right now. And uh, a lot of, of their season, they've been playing with with injury, and they haven't been able to get their, their A number one offense going out there. But they've managed to maintain, and for the first time in a long time, they're dipping down into their minor league system, and they're getting some results. Casey Schmidt has been really, really good. Um, Patrick Bailey has been really good. Um, Brett Wisely, I mean, they're getting uh, Blake Sable. These guys have been really a, a big part of this team, and they've sort of maintained this team and their ability to tread water until some of the bigger stars come back from injury. So I think that you know they're going to be in it, and uh, one thing we've heard from Farhan Zadi is that um, they will be active going into the trade deadline and they'll be aggressive. So I hear that and, you know, you, you feel good about where you're going. The rest of the teams in this National League West, as I say, they're all snake pits. I mean, Dodger Stadium, Dodgers are good. You expect them to win. And, and, and they have been despite losing some significant players here the last year. Um, and they have been besieged by injuries to their rotation. Um, but yet nobody feels sorry for them because they continue to win. The Padres are massive underachievers, but you know with Bob Melvin, I mean, he's going to rally the troops. They're going to be there at some point. They're going to make some noise in this division. Um, Coors Field is Coors Field. It's not easy going in there. I don't care what their record is. The Rockies could be 20 games under 500. You still have to play your tail off to go in there and uh, have a chance to win in Coors Field. And they're playing better baseball. But the biggest surprise overall really has been the Diamondbacks, and it started last season. They've got the youngest legs in the division. They've got the best defense in the division. They've got a, a, a rotation full of strike throwers. And, uh, and they play baseball. They don't rely on the home run. They can steal a base. They can hit behind the runner. They can lay down a bunt. You know, fundamentally, I think they're the best team in our division. So, uh, you know, I, I think the fact that they're 10 games over 500 coming into this podcast really shouldn't be a surprise. We kind of called this and felt it last year. Their fortunes changed, and now these young players are starting to believe in themselves. They're going to be a factor. So, you know, what I'm saying is from here on out, these last four months in the National League West, it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting division. Today with the schedule with 12 teams making the playoffs, now more than ever, it is a time to tread water. If you can hang around 500, get the right combo, get everybody healthy, make a push, it's the easiest time in the history of baseball ever to get to the postseason. Now, I'm not saying it's easiest to to win it all because you've got three rounds of, of, of landmines to go through, whereas in 30, 40 years ago, two teams made it. It was one series and you went to the World Series. So the, the 162 became much more imperative. Nowadays, you're right. It, I, I wonder if going forward, if they continue to add playoff teams, almost like an NBA-type formula, if, if teams start to uh, – strategize around that and play for the postseason and just be good enough to get us in and then go for it. But it's going to be interesting. And I think hanging around now is a strategy. Yeah. Just get there. I mean, I, you know, the giants three world series championships in 2010, 12 and 14, they, they were always the last seed in the tournament. And, uh, and you know, the in October, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a weird month because if you start getting breaks you know, you're going to be a factor. And, uh, and when you can ignite, you know, 25 or now 26 guys to believe, um, and when they all come together and they forge this one big 
chunk of energy, it, it's hard to turn that around. So just getting there is important. I don't see baseball going to a larger format, bringing more teams in. I think that they've, they've stretched it as far as they could. I love it. I love October now because of, uh, of you know, the additional teams and the fact that, um, you know, the one and done thing is gone. I never liked the one and done thing. I, I, I think that's unfair. You play your tail off to get to the to to the uh, um, to the playoffs, and one game determines your fate. I never liked that, but uh, but I, I like the format now. I I think they've they've really researched it. I mean, I, I love the new schedule. I love the postseason. You know, I think the guys who are running the show right now know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, I think I once again from a fan's perspective, it keeps so many more cities in the race so much longer. Uh, I, I haven't been disappointed, you know, and I've started to come back to the game of baseball three, four or five years ago and watch all these postseasons. I've been entertained. I haven't been disappointed one, one postseason in the last four or five. So I, I agree with you. I think they're doing it right. Uh, we just recently had Bucky Dent on the, on the podcast. And there was a lot of talk of that Boston Yankee rivalry. It's been there forever. Uh, you know, in my time and in, in the late, late nineties, early two thousands, that Boston Yankee rivalry was intense. It seemed like every Monday night baseball was Yankees, Yankees, Boston, but there's another rivalry that some people, especially on the West coast will say is, is equal. I don't know if I see it that way. What do you see? It's that giants Dodger rivalry because there's really not too many true rivalries in baseball. I was in Seattle. I was in Cincinnati. We tried to force rivalries, but they, they were never, you know, just natural organic. Well, you know, I, I grew up in, in Southern California. And when I was a kid, you know, the only games we saw on TV were the Dodgers and the Giants. That, that was it. That was the, that was the TV games. So, I mean, and Vince Scully was my, my mentor. I, I love Dodger baseball, baseball because of Vince Scully. So in watching those games, I learned about the culture of the Dodgers, of course, because I was a fan, but I learned the culture of the Giants. And I love the rivalry. I love the fact that it, it came from New York and it was, it was an intense rivalry between the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers. I mean, I, I love the fact that we have 141 years of history and the Dodgers, I think, are one, 120. I mean, we've been around a long time playing those guys. When I came into professional baseball, I was with the Cubs and I was part of the Cubs-Cardinals rivalry. And it was awesome. I loved it. And when you go into St. Louis in, in the middle of summer and, and you'd have the place packed and to be half the fans would be Cardinal fans and half the fans, Cub fans. It was just live. It was, and you knew it, it meant more to your fans. Those, those games meant more to your fans. And, uh, and because it meant so much, it, it became a playoff game within the season. And when I got traded to San Francisco and I became part of, of this rivalry that I grew up watching the Dodger giants, uh, rivalry it it became very special to me the fans make the rivalry the things that i've heard in the outfield in dodger stadium yelled at me i've never heard any in, in any other ballpark <laughs> not in st louis not in anywhere and and you know players come and go but the fans keep the rivalry they keep the intensity of the rivalry and uh, and the dodger giants games they're just different they're playoff games you know, I'll tell you nothing too that happened with interleague that I never really knew when I was a player. You know, we play the A's every year before the season, a Bay Bridge series, and it was an exhibition game, man, big deal. When it started going interleague, the dot, or the uh, Giants and the and the A's, that became a rivalry, 
and a really, really good rivalry and one that meant the world to your fan base and one that that it felt like a playoff game in the middle of the season, too. And now I'm 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 afraid that's going to go away. I, I, I the fact that the giant or the A's are, are threatening to leave, it sickens me because of, of of how much that that series meant. But anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. But basically, I was proud to be part of the Do- Giants Dodgers series. That that rivalry to me is sacred, and uh, it was when I was a kid, and it certainly was when I was playing it, and it is to me now as a broadcaster. As you met, you've been a part of great Giants teams as a player, as a uh as a broadcaster for at least four decades uh, started with the 87, the playoff run you guys had 89. I know, I, I don't think you were on the roster at 89. You were on the team though. Correct. For that yeah. I had experience. a, I tore up my uh, rotator in July and I was done. I had great seats. <laughs> the, the earthquakes here, Dravecki coming back that, that unbelievable scene back then. Uh, I, I I remember it. I was in the minor leagues, and I remember uh, Dave coming back from the cancer, and then that happened on the field. You were there for that. Take me through what it was like when you were there as a player, then when you went to the booth, the, the dusty years, the Barry Bonds years, which I played through. Uh, well, start with, with you as a player in, in San Francisco, being a giant. We talked about Candlestick Park. That was hilarious to me. They only had a urinal in the dugout we had to walk across the field. So, so if nature called mid game, it's like, you got two options. You're either waiting to the end of the game or you're going to run across the field and go up into the clubhouse, which is under the right field bleachers. Or you could do the Lasorda and take a dump in the urinal. You could do that. I, yeah. I, I never thought about it, but he did do that. I I've heard that before. Yeah, he did. Um, but look, I, I don't want to dog that guy. Cause I loved him. When I first got to the giants, I was disappointed getting trading there. Cause I came from Philadelphia, which is, you know, coming from the Cubs, where we were not very good, to the Phillies, which I thought was certainly, the, if it wasn't the class of the National League, it was certainly the class of the East. And I just loved everything about it. It was the only time in my career I played in a one-team town, and I, I just loved everything about it. And then I got traded the next year to the Giants, and I didn't want to go because I knew the Phillies had a good team, and they did indeed. The year I left, they went to the World Series against Baltimore in 83. And uh, for the first three years I was with the Giants, it, it just spiraled until, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, uh, you know, we lost a hundred games in 85, but when Roger Craig and Al Rosen came in and turned things around, it is the most important thing to me in my whole career. It was what I'm most proud of being part of the resurgence of an old franchise. And we brought back respectability and credibility to our fan base and really to the baseball fans around the country. And, uh, and then getting to the playoffs in 87 and certainly the world series in 89, um, it was just, uh, you know, to watch the Giants fans are incredible fans. And, you know, they paid their dues for 40 years sitting in a, a dump at Candlestick Park watching baseball. And still they came. And then when we left in 1990, uh, or I'm sorry, and then we, when we left in 2000 and went into the new ballpark, it was almost like they'd been rewarded for all the, the, the nasty nights in Candlestick. So the decade of of the nineties and the caliber of baseball that was played there because of the work of Al Rosen and Roger Craig that set the tone for Bob Quinn and Dusty Baker in 1993. And to take those teams that they were just, you know, they, they were good teams. And then the Brian Sabian era era started in 1997 and took it all the way um, into the two thousands. And it was just such a glorious time. 
And it was fun because the people were being rewarded with a great venue and, and the players loved playing there and visiting players couldn't get there. And it was just a scene. It was so much fun. And it is there today. I mean, it's, you know, what happened back in the eighties, uh, turning the franchise around, watching the, uh, the, the, the expectation grow through the nineties and then delivering in, in 2010, 12 and 14. Uh, it, it's, it's been unbelievable to be part of it. And, uh, you know, and Dwayne Kuyper and I, I mean, you know, we're like the oldest guys around and, and we've been able to see all of it from the start in the early eighties and, uh, to where they are right now. And it's been an unbelievable ride. I, I was just on a San Francisco radio show and, and they were asking me, I guess they're doing a bonds documentary. He was asking me about those years and Barry and I was just kind of telling him my truths about it. It's like, I didn't like Barry as a player, as a, as an opponent. I'll tell you what though, when the game started, I didn't have, more respect for anybody than Barry Bonds. The greatest I've ever seen. Uh, you were right there. First class. Please, Crook, tell, tell these people, tell my son if he's listening, how good Barry Bonds was for that period. I've never seen anything like it. Well, you know, I, mean, I, I watched Hank Aaron and I watched Willie Mays as a kid. And, you know, I mean, that's you know, a teenager watching him and whatnot. I, I don't think I could really truly appreciate somebody until I had the experience in baseball that I did being a player, n- knowing what, what it took to be good. Um, <clears throat> just appreciating the Tony Gwynn's of the world that separated themselves with ability and, and, and determination. And then you, you come across a guy that was so completely unique because, you know, you, you're a third generation guy with your grandpa, your dad, and then, you know, the legacy that your brother and you carried on beautifully, I might add. Um, there aren't many guys that can lay that claim. And Bonds really essentially was a third generation guy. His godfather was Willie Mays. His father was Barry or was Bobby Bonds. So his whole life, he was sitting around a dinner table talking baseball, but talking at a level of baseball that far exceeded what the normal 10 or 12 year old kid would was privileged to. I mean, he was learning how to pick up pitches that a pitcher would tip when he was, you know, in little league. And uh, by the time he got to the big leagues, I mean, he was a savant. His knowledge was higher than a PhD and his instinct on the field. And I'm not talking in the batter's box. And that was an obvious. It was on the field as a player defensively. It was on the base pass as a runner. Everything that he did was better than the normal player, was better than the good player. His first step on defense, his first step on the base pass were so instinctive. And and you just watched him at, at the way that he played left field. He once told me that he knew in 1993, he says, yeah, I'm playing behind Bill Swift and John Birkin, both who had unbelievable sinkers, right-handed pitchers. And he goes, I'm playing in left field. And I look out and I watch Bonds play left field. And he's playing 10 feet off the line in left field. The gap between Bonds and the center fielder, you could have parked 14 Beacons moving vans lined up end to end, and you still would have had room to park another Volkswagen. There was It looked like nobody was out there. But yet, when guys would hit the ball, he would hit right to where he was standing. And I asked him about it. I go, what are you doing? He goes, look. I'm out there. I know this guy's stuff. I know this guy's swing. And I know if he hits the ball, he's going to hit it to me. I go, well, aren't you worried about looking like a fool if the ball hits in the gap? He goes, oh, hell yeah. He says, I'm leaning left hard thinking it's going to happen every time. 
He said, I know one thing. I have affected that guy's a bat from left field. And I thought about that. I said, well, my God, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, affected somebody in the batter's box from the outfield. Well, this is where his intelligence was. And and more often than not, you know, where he de- defended those guys because of, of Burkett, Burkett and uh, Swift stuff, it played off. It worked. And he would do a dozen of those things during the course of a homestand, let, let alone the course of a season. So watching him, I learned more baseball. I became better because I became more knowledgeable of the game because I got to see it through his eyes. And then, of course, when he got in the batter's box, oh, my God. That was like watching. I mean, what? I mean, for the most part, guys are usually average hitters or they're power hitters. Rare that you have a guy that combines both. Rare that you have a pitcher that combines the ability to control, you know, great stuff, you know, like DeGrom or, or Schilling or uh, um, um, who else? Clemens. I mean, it's just rare that you see that. Well, Bonds was the whole package. And on top of it, he could run. I mean, we've never seen anything like him, nor will we ever see anything like him. And uh, it was just an era that, uh, you know, we were privileged to witness. Nobody missed his at-bats. I don't care, man. You'd throw, you, you'd hold a four-burrito dump, like, for two hours waiting to watch him hit. You would not <laughs> miss it. It was just the way it was with him. Mike, did you know, did you, uh, know my grandpa Ray Boone at all? I met him twice. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was fun because – you know, he was never allowed to say a whole lot when your dad was here. Your dad was showing him off. He was so proud of him. And uh, that's how I met him. I met him in Cincinnati twice when your dad was a skipper. Or no, maybe he wasn't. He was – when did your – I forget the year. Uh, but I met him twice. And uh, the thing that impressed me the most was how proud your dad was of him. It, 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 uh, believe me, dad's getting to that age now. You know, he's in his mid set. He reminds me so much of grandpa because grandpa and me were really tight. Uh, it just from uh, ever since I can remember, he was one of my earliest influences baseball wise. But <clears throat> talking about bonds, I'll give you, I'll give you a quick story about him. He, you, you, I have to put it in context that the guys that played in that era, Gramps played from 47 to roughly 60 played with Ted Williams. He, he can't tell me enough Ted Williams stories. You know uh, he's, he's telling Bob Feller to this day is the greatest pitcher that ever lived. And Gramps will tell you, you know, guys back then, they were very, <clears throat> they were very, uh, they defended their generation, not only in sports, but their generation in general, it was better than ours. You know, I remember coming out after games and Gramps would be like, ah, Randy Johnson's not that good. Bob Feller. And I'd say, quit with the Bob Feller, Gramps. But that's how grandpas are. And I appreciated that. And I loved Gramps for it because he was Gramps. I get a phone call. Gramps gets rushed to the hospital. And this is this is two days before he passed away. And we kind of know that that things aren't good. You know, I'm not getting good reports from the doctor. So I'm sitting in the in the in the office with him. And now, trust me, once again. Let me preface it. He is the most proud man in the history of the world about his generation. He looks at me. He can't talk. He's writing on a a pad of paper. And he says, Brett, this Jake Peavy kid and Jake Peavy was going to be a rookie with the Padres. This is back then. He said, this Jake Peavy kid's got a chance to be good. I said, okay, I'll look out for Jake Peavy. And he said, and yes, you're right. Barry Bonds is a better player than Ted Williams. I lost it. 
Kruk, I started crying. I said, that man's going to die any minute now because he is not coming back to face the wrath of me saying, <laughs> I told you he was better. So I, I, everybody out there, and, and we have the debate, and that's why baseball is great. You know, we can debate Maris and, and Willie Mays and Bonds and who's the best. Well, really, it's tough to go generation to generation. But for Ray Boone on his deathbed to admit that Barry Bonds – is the greatest hitter he's ever seen with his own eyes. That was enough for me. And I, and anybody that tries to, to uh, debate that now, I said, you talk to Ray Boone. That's, that's where I go. So I think it's pretty good. He was that good. I mean, I used to sit there crew at second base and even some of my best years, I'd look at my numbers on the board and say, those are damn good. And, and, and I watched Barry get in the box and I'd say, and I can't carry his jock strap onto the field. He's that much better than the rest of us. You know, and, and he saw the game differently. I mean, he just assumed that you saw the same tips that a pitcher was tipping a pitch. He saw the same, you know, move when a guy out of the stretch would commit to home and, and create a, a, an advantage for a good jump at first. I mean, he just saw the game in a different way. Um, we, you know, you know, Barry, you know, he can be as aloof as anybody I've ever been around. We would get him on a plane. Kipe and I would as broadcasters, we would sit in the middle in the emergency row where we had the leg room and, and uh, you know, the players were in the back and the, the coaches were up front. And, and so we had that, that area and bonds would, you know, we'd go from New York to San Francisco. He would come over and we'd start talking ball and, uh, and he would open up and he'd talk for six hours. I mean, it got to the point where Kipe would fake like he was asleep. So he'd go away. We just couldn't shed him, <laughs> but it, it was such an incredible conversation because of the things that he would come up with and the, and the knowledge that he had and the reference points that he had as to how he learned it, where he learned it from who he learned it. And just the, the, the privilege of his education that he, you know, was, was sharing with us. And we, we always tell you, you need to write, you need to do this. You need to let young hitters know all this. You need to write a book. You go, you go I will, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do a deal. But it was just such great, pure baseball. And, uh, you know, and a lot of it came from from Mays. A lot of it came from his father, obviously. But, man, it was all good. It was solid stuff. It was just great baseball. Uh, 10, 12, and 14, the three World Series, unbelievable. I My favorite part of those is watching Bumgarner in the one year, most miraculous pitching performance I've ever seen. Steve Perry singing don't stop believing in the stands that was one of the coolest things i've ever seen i still refer to it on youtube uh i i think it's awesome don't stop believing and then you end up coming back and winning but um give me just a, a little rapid fire what you remember about each one 2010 well 2010 giants had never won i mean it was 53 years of being in san francisco and they never won so when this whole thing goes down um there came that point in time when you knew they were going to win it, you knew, you smelled it, you sensed it being around the game. I mean, you knew when, when teams came together and they forged a, uh, uh that, that dynamic that was, uh, you, it was irreversible. And, uh, and then you just stood back and you watched it. You watched the dynamic that was not only in the, in the, in the bus or the airplane or in the clubhouse or the dugout, it, it went up into the stands and then into the community. And the community coming together was the most powerful thing I'd ever seen. When it happened and when they finally got that last out in Texas and then game five and they became world champions for the first time in San Francisco, it was like everybody in 
Northern California got laid together for the first time. It was the damnedest thing I ever saw in my life. And the parade down Market Street, it was it was unbelievable. And we were standing up there on the stair steps of City Hall, and we were looking out over a million people, more than a million people. And I'm thinking to myself, who in the history of mankind has ever done this? I mean, I felt like the Pope. And when everybody got quiet, when you got up to the microphone to talk, it just sucked the air right out of the sky. And you could have heard a pin drop. And it was just an emotion and a feeling of adrenaline that came over to me. And I only played in one All-Star game, which I thought was the player's most adrenaline I ever had in my life. It was dwarfed by the adrenaline I felt on that podium, in front of that microphone, exalting this team and describing the the emotion that that overwhelmed all of us in Northern California and really around the country because we saw Giants hats all over the country. It was it was incredible. 2010 was like nothing I'd ever seen before. 2012. Well, 2012, they started the the, the playoffs against the uh, five game set against the the Reds, and the Reds win the first two games. Now the Giants go back to to Cincinnati, and uh, and they have to win one game. The Giants hadn't won a series in Cincinnati in six years. And they, and they were lit. They had they had a great team. Dusty Baker had that team honed to a fine edge. And uh, and they win three and win the series. I couldn't believe it. Then the next series, they go down three games to one, and it's game uh, five in, in St. Louis. Giants are down. And Barry Zito's on the mound. And it's the bottom of the first inning, and there's the bases loaded, nobody out. And I'm thinking, this is not going to end well. Before we got to the – to the, to the field that day, the St. Louis Cardinal fans were popping champagne out in front of the ballpark. And the Giants win that game. Zito goes seven innings, a shutout ball. And then they don't lose another game. And they go right from the Cardinal series into, into to Detroit. And we saw Verlander and Scherzer. They're on the same staff. That team was just an unbelievable powerhouse, and they sweep them. How can you explain that? And again, I mean, it was almost like, you know, the parade, the parade was – it wasn't as intense in 2010. It was wonderful. But I think there was a little bit of a disappointment in the Giants fans as they had no emotion. Uh, they had a four-game sweep. They didn't know how to handle it. And then when they go into 2014, of course, it was the Bumgarner series. And that was the damnest thing I'd ever seen. You know, they they upset a heavily favored Royals team. And and then that uh, and that parade was it was just ridiculous because of of one guy really and what 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 Bumgarner did, and, and he brought, you know, Machisimo back to the starting starting pitcher uh, position. Uh, it, it was just a total throwback. And so they all had different personalities, but they were all just so meaningful to, you know, to forming just the, the religious dedication that the Giants have today for this club. Yeah, and Boach, Boach was there for all three. And anybody that knows Bruce, it's just he's one of those guys. You know, he's just everybody loves Bruce. I got a chance to play for him one year. I just 2000 in in um, San Diego, but it seems like I played for him for you know when I see him now in an off season event, it seems like I played for him for a hundred years. It's just Boach in his ways doing it again in in Texas. It's really it's really cool to watch. Uh, before I let you go, I just your your longtime partner. Uh, you guys have been such an awesome duo for so many years. What is Dwayne quite? What does Dwayne Kuyper mean to you? 
I don't even know if it's possible to say it's beyond a brotherhood. Uh, but he's my best friend. I love him. And, you know, my wife and I have been married for 48 years, and, and Kaip and I have been married since 1982. I always thought he was kind of a peacock when I played against him because, you know, he wouldn't wear his hat during batting practice, and he'd spray his uni on, and his hair was always perfect. And, <laughs> and then when I got together with him in 83, I just uh, saw the magic that this guy had in the clubhouse. I mean, he was there. Mm-hmm. He ran that clubhouse, and uh, he makes me laugh every day hard, 10 times. And uh, just to be able to go through life together, you know, we have kids the same age and uh, and just life experiences, you know. I mean, life is not always fair. And, uh, you know, to be able to go through it with somebody that, that supports you, um, you know, like your wife and, and Dwayne Kuyper, I mean, uh, it's pretty unbelievable what I've, you know, my, my, my personal life and my professional life, what I've been privileged to have, the relationships I've had. So it's very emotional for me to talk about Kype. And, uh, and I, you know, I, we call each other every day a couple of times, you know, and, and he'll make me laugh a couple of times. I mean, it's just, it's just that way. I mean, it's like being able to, to, to broadcast a game you love with a guy you love and broadcast it like you're sitting on a bar stool having a couple of pops watching baseball. You know, that's kind of what we do. And, I, you know, I, I'm an analyst. So technically, I'm supposed to be responsible for everything. But with him, I don't. I don't have to talk about pivots at second base or, you know, how to bunt or what's better against this particular pitcher. You know, bunting down the third baseline, taking one with you. What, what are you looking for to get a good jump off this guy's move? You know, what I mean, he's right there. And, and, and so we can talk ball, which has kind of been, I think, one of the best things about our relationship on TV. But uh, you get me going about him, Booney, and I get quite emotional. It, it's it's been awesome. I mean, me just you know I played through it. You guys were there when I was there, and and still going. And I don't know, you're one of my you, if not my favorite duo. Uh, not that the fact that you're so unique. The, the, the unique factor is that the feelings you have for one another after all these years a lot of tandems don't like each other it's just we show up in separate cars we get our work done and we go home the fact that you have that relationship i think really comes across in your broadcast secondly he's a hitter you're a pitcher you got more home runs than him though i know uh we don't bring that up that's that's source subject booty don't say that but it, but it's such a cool relationship, and it comes through in the broadcast. And you know it's a genuine thing. It's not because, you know, we are professionals, and, and we we can act professional whenever you need. But but I think that the true feeling you do have for Kype and vice versa, it, it's something you can't fake, and it comes through on air. Uh, still to this day, you're a pleasure. Uh, that All-Star game was 86. You won 20 games. Sam Fran, Wall of Fame. Uh, Mike Kruko, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks thanks for coming on the Boone Podcast. This has been very cool and uh, great catching up with you. Booney, thank you. You know, I, I've always admired your family and uh, the class with which you've you played the game. Three generations are doing it the same way. Your brother entertains me nightly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and me. <laughs> and I'm proud to be on your, on your podcast. Please have me back anytime. You got it. Thanks. And for all you out there, listen to the Boone Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.